Welcome. This is the Woodbury Church of Christ Sermon Podcast. We're glad that you tuned in, and if you'd like to know more about our church, you can find out all the information at woodburychurch.org. Or we'll see you some Sunday, Sundays at 10 a.m. Looking forward to it. Good morning. The sun is shining. I hope you guys are doing all right. I hope everybody's car starts at the end of church. We'll see. Uh, we got jumper cables, and I'm sure Travis will help you out because he's that kind of guy. Um, hey, welcome. I'm really glad that you're here. We are in our series called Torah Together. If Just a quick refresher. Torah is the Hebrew word for the first five books of the Bible. It, it literally means law, and those first five books contain the law. Now, there's other stuff in there, too. There's stories and all kinds of things, but it contains the law, and so they just shorthand said the Torah, and that meant the Genesis, uh, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. So as a church, we're reading through those first five books of the Bible. Now, some of you are like, wait, this is my first Sunday here this year, and I didn't know about any of this, and I'm a little behind. Don't you worry. We'll make sure you get caught up, but if you want to do a speed run through, uh, what is it, the first 39 chapters or wherever we are, you certainly can do that. I actually have some QR codes uh, on the screen. So this is cool. We're such a cool, high-tech, advanced church. You would never believe it. Uh, Oh, and by the way, I need to say this. If you're just joining us online and you're like, I don't see anything on my screen, it's because you should have been here and the, (laughs) the slides aren't working. So let me tell you what's going on here. This one that says Holy Bible, that's the YouVersion app. Most of you probably have it. We have a page on the YouVersion app, so you can go on that app and you can find Woodbury Church of Christ. We're so legit. And on that app, there is a reading plan that roughly corresponds to the one in the books. Um, So get on there, do that. That would be awesome. This QR code over here, which may be harder to read or see, you can get it on our website as well, uh, is the actual reading plan. You know those books? How many of you have? I saw a couple books in the wild. Does anybody have their book with them this morning? Yeah, a couple of you do. That's so cool. I'm so excited. Like, it makes me feel so good. There it is. Um, I love it. Anyway, those books, I ordered 225 of those books because I thought, you know, we've got about 150 adults or so at church. I don't know if that's true. I was just thinking maybe that's true. Uh, we got a bunch of kids. Some of the kids aren't going to participate. I thought some of you wouldn't participate. Turns out we ran out of books. Isn't that awesome? That's awesome. Yeah. Uh, so this QR code over here actually has a PDF version of the same reading plan. You can't get the cool book and show off like everybody else, but you can at least participate. Uh, So we're in Genesis, still in Genesis. We began January 1st. We've made it through almost about four-fifths or so uh, of Genesis. And please, if you haven't joined in or participated, please do. Uh, But let me tell you this. Genesis is very cool, but Genesis is wild, wild. I am not making this up that if, if I were in high school and they made a movie about the story of Genesis, my mother would not let me watch that movie. <laughs> I'm not kidding. Because there's, all, there's, there's jealousy and intrigue and murder and attempted murder and abuse and affairs and lies and all kinds of stuff. And my mom would have been, well, this is not appropriate for a 17-year-old to watch. And she's right. But when you're reading it, <laughs> I should, probably shouldn't tell you this, me and Liam have been reading it a little bit together, and there's some parts where I'm just like, hey, buddy, do you want to go in another room uh, just for a second? We've been listening, I guess I should say. Do you want to go in another room? Because this part is a little, it's a little 
graphic. It's a little intense. So let me just say Genesis is wild. That's not necessarily the thing that should draw you to read it, but I'm guessing as you have been exposing yourself to these stories, you're like, what is going on? Why is that in the Bible? And we're going to talk about that uh, this morning. It's very intriguing. So let me just, just briefly, if I could, walk you through some of the, the jaw-dropping moments in Genesis that I think draw us into these stories. So, so let me give you just a, just a couple quick examples. Uh, first of all, Abraham and Isaac. Abraham and Isaac, fascinating story of how Isaac even came about, son of promise, all that. You can read about this particular story in Genesis 22. Talk about emotional tension in the story. Abraham is told by God, you need to sacrifice your son Isaac. And Abraham is like, okay. And they're marching up the hill, and Isaac is carrying the wood, and there's the knife, and Isaac turns to his dad and said, hey, dad, where's the actual sacrifice? Imagine the moment that Abraham has to try. How do you answer a question like that to your son? Where's this lamb? Or how about the story of Jacob and Rachel? This would be Isaac. He makes it. Spoiler alert. He doesn't get killed. Isaac has a son named Jacob who marries a, 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 technically a second cousin, I think, or a cousin, Bible's weird, named Rachel. And then talk about this twist. He falls in love with this woman named Rachel. Like love at first sight. It's very like, it's, well, I don't know, romantic. Is love at first sight romantic? But anyway, it's very, you know, like you're, you're kind of drawn into this story. He agrees with his uncle to work for seven years for, for, for this woman to be his bride. And then the morning after the wedding, he wakes up and discovered that his uncle has pulled a switcheroo and he actually slept with her older sister. This is the Bible. This is not like a Netflix show. This is the Bible. And so he goes to his uncle and he's like, what are you doing? And his uncle says, oh, hey, older kids got to get married first. It's just the way it is. I guess I forgot to mention that in the fine print of the contract. But if you want to still marry Rachel, you can work for me for another seven years. It's just this wild story. It's a wild story. I think that's the plot of The Notebook. I, I haven't seen The Notebook, but is that maybe that's the plot of The Notebook? I don't know. It's, it's romantic, I guess, in some ways. Then there's Joseph. So this is Jacob's 11th son. This young man named Joseph, and talk about drama. Younger siblings, they're annoying. It's just the way God made them. But his older brothers say, he's so annoying, we have to kill him. We have to murder him. We have to. There's no other choice. But then one brother says, wait, what if we sold him into slavery instead? And then that's what they do. Let's just sell him. But here's the question. These stories are interesting and intriguing and wild and, 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 and fascinating. But what do we do with them? What do we do with these stories? How do we take them in? How do we understand them? How do we, you know, we talk all the time about the Bible supposed to apply to your life. How do you apply a story of a guy accidentally marrying the wrong sister? How do you apply that to your life? You're never going to be in that situation, I hope. I can't imagine a scenario in which this would ever happen to you. How do you, what do we do with these stories? Now, maybe some of you just read them uh, or for entertainment value, and, and I suppose that's better than nothing. But the Bible is the most important piece of literature in the world. 
There has to be value to these stories. And so how do we get that value for us? Now, most of the time, and this is kind of how it was modeled for me. I don't know if anybody sat me down and said this is the way it is. But it was modeled for me that you treat these stories like Aesop's fables. That you mine them for some moral nugget, some moral truth by which you can live your life. And, and, and that's a pretty common approach. And there are plenty of moral truths within the story of Genesis. There are plenty of them. Um, there's good lessons like don't marry t- two wives. Several of these guys did that, and it didn't work out well for them. Uh, lessons like uh, don't have a child with your wife's handmaiden. Don't do that, right? Oh, that's a good lesson. All right, take that. Uh, don't. Here's one. Several of the heroes in the story tell people that their wife is actually their sister. Abraham does it twice, and Isaac does it as well. So don't do that. Don't walk around telling people that your wife is your sister. There was a famous musician that did that for a while, Jack White and the White Stripes, and people were like, that's shocking. Don't do that. That's weird. I don't like that at all. Or how about this? Don't pretend to be your brother to get your father's blessing. That's what Jacob did to steal a blessing uh, from his older brother Esau. So lots of don'ts. And most of those situations, you'll never find yourself in anything remotely like that. Remotely like that. But here's the danger in just approaching the text to mind them for some moral truth. I spoke with someone, spoke like face-to-face with someone who said, hey, these heroes in the Bible, they were polygamous, ergo, God allows polygamy. I'm like, I don't think that's the moral lesson you should have been taking from those stories. But in those stories in Genesis, nowhere is there a little narrator, a little editor. Nowhere is there a voice of God that says, now we know they shouldn't have been marrying multiple women. It doesn't happen. But we read the text and we see every time this happens, it's a disaster. And of course, this is true throughout the story of the Bible. It's always a disaster. And then, of course, you get some good guidelines later in the New Testament. So if you just look at the text to try to draw out a moral truth, you can get some very wrong conclusions. I don't know that that's the most important way to engage with the texts. Another uh, a rabbi named David Forbin actually talks of, warns about another way that we engage these stories, and he calls it the lullaby effect. And what he means by that is that we're so familiar with these stories that they lose their edge and they lose their ability to, to, to transform us. He uses the example of the uh, rockabye baby <clears throat> lullaby, right? I don't know if you've sung that to your children, but it's a common lullaby. Rockabye baby in the treetop. Why is the baby in the tree? <laughs> when the wind blows, the cradle will rock. When the bow breaks, the cradle will fall. And down, you're singing that to your children. Go to sleep, you know. Happy dreams. And he just says, we lose we lose the, the, the pointedness of the stories when we allow ourselves to, to think that we're familiar with them because we're actually probably not as familiar as we think. Now, those approaches, the Aesop's fables, the lullaby effect, those approaches tend to miss the larger point. They, they offer some value, but they miss the larger point because we tend to look at these stories as if they're mostly about the people being talked about. That's natural. You're reading a story. These are the characters in their story. This story is about them. 
But honestly, and I think this is proven from the text and from other texts, like the one my father read this morning about how we engage with that word scripture in the, in the, in the scripture reading today, is speaking of the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament. But we lose the point of these because I think we think these are about people, and most of these stories are actually about God. They're actually about God. And oddly, in some of the stories, God isn't even mentioned. But they're still about God. And let me show you how that is true. You learn the most about the character of people by how they react to circumstances, right? My uh, dad, international man of mystery, is 75 years old today. Today is his birthday. Isn't that great? We were, we were trying to think through that. He's been, he's been 25 three times, so he's got great experience at being a 25-year-old. Um, I've known him my entire life, so I have given him many things to react to. I don't know if he'll even uh, remember these. Uh, I, I, they made a bigger impression on me maybe than they did on him. One time we were playing catch, and I think it was at like a church softball game, and I was just a little kid, and I'm throwing him the softball, and he's being nice and throwing it to me. Uh, I wasn't paying attention to what he was paying attention to, and he turned away, and I threw the softball. Evidently, I have great aim, and I hit him. He turned back just to see the softball come right in the face, right? Do you happen to remember that? Not at all. Oh, that's good. Now, you can judge a lot about a person by how they react, and let me tell you how he reacted to that. Not a problem at all. He didn't get annoyed with me. He didn't yell at me. He knew it was a mistake and it was no big deal, and that made me feel good, and that's why I'm so well-rounded emotionally today. <laughs> I don't know if he remembers this, but I used to leave his tools scattered around the lawn, not on purpose, but just because I was using a claw hammer to dig a hole in the front yard, or I was using a power saw to chase my sisters around, I don't know, whatever it was, I used to leave the tools around the front lawn and the back lawn, I guess, to be discovered later by the lawnmower. That's how sometimes they would find. Do you remember this? Doesn't remember this. This could be a feature of being 75 in the memory going. It also could be a feature of who he is and, and how he reacts. And I recall him like picking up a, a tool from the lawn and thinking, uh-oh, I'm in trouble. And I didn't get in trouble. He didn't react poorly to that. I, I, he's, a, I, I believe, a, a man of character. The, the, one time I accidentally caused my sister to pass out. Um, it was a total accident. One time I fell through the attic in our house. I was fine. The ceiling was not fine. Do you remember either of these? All right. My, my, mom, my mom's like, yeah, I remember those. The worst my dad ever reacted to something was when I broke my right hand. I broke it, and I thought something was wrong, but I wasn't sure. It wasn't obvious. There weren't bones sticking out, and my dad thought I was being a little dramatic. I was literally sitting down trying to think, what was the worst my dad ever reacted to a situation? And that was it. He was like, ah, you're fine. Turns out later, x-ray said, nope, he needs a cast. That was it. You're just being a little dramatic. All parents do that, right? I did that to Liam several times this week. He didn't break anything, although he has. In fact, and this is kind of funny because I'm illustrating it as we go. As I preach, when I tell stories that involve my parents, you should always look to them for their reaction because sometimes... (laughs) 
while I'm telling that story on stage is the first that they're learning of it. Like when I got arrested, do you remember that? Just kidding, I didn't, I didn't. My poor mom, she's like, no. I want to uh, look at three snapshots in the stories in Genesis. And our goal is, we read the story, but then our goal is to look to God, to see how he reacts, to get a sense of who he is. That's what Genesis, I believe, is all about. Humans give God a lot to react to, and I want us to see what he does. So let's look at three quick snapshots, some characters. We're not going to do these in chronological order or anything like that. They're just some characters, and I just want us to to walk away with how God reacts to these characters. Uh, The first one I want us to see is Jacob. Jacob, he takes up a lot of space in the narrative of Genesis. If you're current on the reading, you've read his whole story. When, uh, when I go out to eat, I occasionally make modifications to the standard order. There are a couple things I don't like, and I'm a little weird with them. Uh, so I'll ask, can you not put that, or can you put it on the side, that sort of thing. I'll make modifications. Um, and they'll often bring me the meal incorrectly. You know what I'm talking about? Now, some of you guys, you live for that moment. You cannot wait to send that food back. You cannot wait to say, I ordered it this way, and I want to let you know, and can I speak to your manager? I'm not like that at all. If they bring me the food wrong, I always feel like it's my fault. And I always feel like, well, maybe I said it wrong. Maybe I ordered it wrong. Just, will you just leave it, and I'll just not eat it, and I'll go give it to somebody else later, or I'll let someone else eat it for me. I just feel guilty. It's some flaw in my personality. That being said, there is a local restaurant where it was so bad. The service was so bad. The food was messed up. The, the employees were awful. The manager was awful. If there was an Olympics for terrible restaurants, this would be it. And I'm not going to tell you what it is, but I am going to give you a little clue if you want to go on a scavenger hunt. Kareen, uh, my wife, has, ha- has filled out about 13 Google reviews. <clears throat> 12 of them are five stars. This was great. This was wonderful. One of them is one star, and it's this place. It was awful, and she, it made her feel like, okay, I'm going to write down everything that was awful about this experience. It's, a, it's 409 words. It's like a high school essay. I was like, wow, she's really upset because she does not, that's not her like, love language at all to, to write or talk. So long story short, it's a bad experience, and we have never been back. We, we talk as humans. We talk about second chances, but we don't really like to give second chances because you probably have some situations like that. You've probably been to a restaurant you didn't like, and you've never been back. You probably had a coworker that mistreated you once, and you've never given them a second chance. There's, there's, there's situations where we would, we would think this is a ripe opportunity for a second chance, and we're not interested in giving it. We like the idea, have a hard time believing in them. Now, I want you to see in the story, in the narrative of Genesis, because we tend to think if we give God things to react to, we think there's going to be a point at which God says, I'm done with this person. I'm done with them. I've given them chance after chance after chance after chance. I want you to think about Jacob's life. I want you to think about Jacob's life. He deceived his father. The last recorded words that we have from Jacob to his father. He did interact with him on two separate occasions, but the last recorded words that the Bible has of Jacob to his father is a lie, a blatant lie, where Jacob, whose eyesight was going, he knew something, he seems to have known something was up, and he says, are you my son Esau? And Jacob says, yes, it is me, 
Esau. And dad says, well, it sounds a lot like Jacob, but he smells a lot like Esau because he can't see. That's the last thing, the last interaction. And from there, I mean, how much did that have to haunt him? Because for two decades, he's, he's living elsewhere. He destroys his relationship with his brother. He, he breaks trust with his father. He's on the run for his life. And by the way, Jacob, when he fooled his father into, into receiving this birthright, he was 40 years old. He wasn't some you know, impulsive teenager. He was a 40-year-old man who definitely should have known better. He's a mess. Decades later, Jacob hears that his brother Esau, who is so angry at him, he wants to kill him. Decades later, he hears that his brother Esau has found where he is, and he is coming to him with 400 men. Does that sound good or bad? It does not sound good. Jacob's scared, and he prays this prayer, Genesis 32, 9. Then Jacob prayed, O God of my father Abraham, God of my father Isaac. He's like, I know, I mean, you can almost tell in the, in the language, he's like, I, I don't know if I can call you my God because my life has not been great. God of my fathers, you who said to me, go back to your own country and your relatives and I will make you prosper. You gave me a promise, God. He goes, verse 10, I love this. I am unworthy of all the kindness and faithfulness you have shown your servant. I had only a staff when I fled home and crossed the Jordan, and now I'm big enough that I've divided everybody in my household into two different camps. I've got so much going on, all my wealth, all my prosperity. And then he says, he says, save me, God. And you know what God does? Forget you. I've given you plenty of chances. No. God saves him. Again. And again. And again. There's no point at which, I mean, we would expect, and we would probably do this to other people, oh, Jacob, you, I'm giving you a one-star review on Google, and we will never speak again. And that is just not how God reacts. God looks at us, failure after failure after failure, and he says, I'm still with you. I've still made promises to you. I still love you. I've talked to lots of people who feel like their moral choices have essentially ruined their lives. And, and, and not that they can't get a job, although in some cases maybe that's part of it, but that they just, they've ruined so many relationships, they've burned so many bridges, they just, God's, God, God's got to be done with them. And, 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 and there's a danger, I mean, obviously I think that's a lie, but there's a, a danger in thinking that because we start thinking God loves more, uses more, those better people. Maybe they're not perfect, but they haven't messed up like I have. God uses them. God cares about them. And when we start thinking that lie, it's a short little trip to another lie that says, well, why even try to make my life better? Why don't I just resign myself to these moral failures that I've created? Why don't I just continue to live this way because it's not going to matter because surely God has given up on me. Think of people you know that God didn't give up on. A sibling, a parent, a grandparent, a child, you. I think Genesis is about God and I think we're supposed to look at these flawed characters and think, huh, God reacts with grace and love and kindness to them. Maybe he'll react with grace and love and kindness to me. Maybe he won't give up on me. That's Jacob. There's other characters in this story I want to draw your attention to as well. 
In fact, there's two, and you could almost call them background characters. They don't get a lot of screen time. They're kind of, uh, they're kind of the equivalent of you know, when your kid gets cast as a tree in the fourth grade play, and you're like, well, all right, well, I guess I got to go to the play anyway. They're kind of just destined for the background. And in some cases, these characters are treated terribly by the heroes of the story. Let me give you an example of this. You know the story of, of Abraham sleeping with Hagar's uh, or, or Sarah's slave and having a child, and Sarah gets jealous, and it's just, it's just a mess. Look at what Abraham, the hero of the story, does. Early the next morning, this is Genesis 21, 14. Early the next morning, Abraham took, Abraham took some of the food and skin of water and gave them to Hagar. He sent them on her, set them on her shoulders and then sent her off with the boy. She went on her way and wandered in the de- desert of Beersheba. Uh-oh, it's not looking good. Verse 15, when the water in the skin was gone, she put the boy under one of the bushes. Then she went off and sat down a bow shot away, for she thought, I cannot watch the boy die. This is the hero of the story that has created this scenario and left this woman and his son to die out in the desert. I cannot watch the boy die. And as she sat there, she began to sob. She's literally thrown out like trash. Literally. Completely vulnerable. And unrelated to carrying the plot forward. And her part in the story just could have ended there. And we could have, well, meanwhile, back in Abraham's tent. Genesis 21, verse 17. Listen. God heard the boy crying. And what does God do? Rescues her and the son. He rescues them. There's another disturbing story where Jacob loves Rachel and finds himself somehow married to her older sister. Her, her dad pulls this, this wild bait and switch. Imagine if you're Leah and you've just been communicated to by your father that the only way you're ever going to find a husband is if we try to fool him on your wedding night. That's the only way. And Matt, what would that do to the psyche of your, of your child? It's a mess. And, and of course, the dynamics in the family are a mess. You can read over and over again. It's just awful. But I, I love what it writes in the text. The text doesn't need to say this. Leah is not the main character. She's not moving the story forward. She's just part of the background. Genesis 29, 31, when the Lord saw that Leah was not loved, he began to bless her. Here's this background character, the details of her life, and God is paying attention to them. See, this is why we have to read these stories, because maybe Genesis being about God, if God doesn't overlook, like Psalm says, the brokenhearted and crushed in spirit, and I feel overlooked and I feel forgotten, maybe God has not forgotten about me. That's why we have to read those stories. Maybe God cares about the details of our lives. Maybe If God cared about Leah being or feeling unloved, maybe God cares when we feel unloved. What do we learn about the character of God? What do we learn about who he is? One last uh, snapshot synopsis, uh, Abraham and Isaac. Years ago, uh, I had this strange encounter with someone who claimed to know my dad. Uh, They were living in another state, and I went to visit them, and he was somebody that went to church with them. And he was relating this anecdote about my dad and him doing some job at the church. They were fixing something, doing something. And he said, I don't remember the scenario, but it was something about how my dad had gotten upset, gotten really angry, yelled a little bit, and then swore. 
It was really interesting to, to hear that because I also know my dad. And I just told you that I left power tools in the lawn for my dad to discover with the mower and he never yelled at me or swore. The worst word that I have ever heard my dad say was rats. <laughs> rats. Rats. Sometimes, sometimes he'll say, good grief. That's really... I mean, there's nothing my dad has ever said that would even get a movie a PG rating, right? And so when this stranger is telling me something that I know not to be true about the character of my father, what do I believe? Do I believe this random stranger or do I believe what I know about God, right? The, the uh, Abraham, listen, this is important, Abraham being asked to sacrifice Isaac is an unsettling story. It is unsettling. I know a lot of us have probably been so familiar, lullaby effect, we've come to terms with it, but it is strange. It almost doesn't sound like the character of God to do that. It, it, I, I get, I'm not trying to undermine the scripture itself, but it doesn't sound like it. Um, it's, it's strange. It seems out of character. And there's many responses people have to it. I listened to, briefly listened to a sermon. I got kind of annoyed with it about three minutes in when this, this preacher was saying, see, God was wrong here. I know. You're like, why would you go to a church where they're like, God is wrong? Why are you even reading the Bible if you think God is wrong? God is wrong here, and Abraham should have stood up to him. And I'm like, I don't think that's the takeaway. I don't know that I want that. I know other responses are, in fact, I have a, a really good friend um, who credits this story with the point at which he realized or maybe decided to leave his faith because he felt like, I cannot believe in a God who would ask a father to sacrifice their own child. I, I can't believe in a God who has that character. And I get that. I, I get that. Listen, we should bring our critical thinking to the text. We should bring questions to the text. We should ask tough questions of these texts because there are some tough things to read in there. But I think it's wise, and this is something that I feel like has, 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 has shifted maybe over the last 40 or 50 years. I don't know. Maybe it's always been this way, and I'm just now noticing it. But I just feel like there, there's, this, there's this shift of, of, of authority what people aren't doing with Scripture is, is they're leaving out this one question, this one, this one option, and it's this. When we read the Bible, and things are particularly difficult, and we don't understand them, and they're confusing, and they even seem disturbing, it seems like people have stopped this one sentence, this one statement to say, maybe I'm missing something. Maybe there's a bigger picture that I'm not quite getting, and I need to think this through, pray this through, talk this through. Maybe I'm missing something. It seems to be that the more I interact with people of, of a variety of, uh, on a spectrum in, in terms of their relationship with God and their Christianity, where people feel like, well, I'm the final judge, and what God did there, I don't like, so I'm done with God. But, but maybe we're missing something in the story. Maybe God has got something up his sleeve that we don't fully understand. Maybe we should approach some of these stories with a little humility. 
Rather than thinking, I've got it figured out and God's wrong or I've got it figured out and I don't want to believe in a God like that, maybe we should say, maybe I'm missing something. We do have truths to reconcile. God is a loving, gracious God. God asked a father to sacrifice his son. Those seem hard to reconcile, but maybe we should wrestle with that before we decide God is wrong. Maybe we should wrestle with that before we walk away from our faith. Now, it's actually pretty cool because, believe it or not, and this isn't in the book of Genesis, this is why the whole scripture informs our ideas, we actually get a glimpse inside of Abraham's mind in this story. It doesn't happen in Genesis. You have to go all the way to the book of Hebrews, but we actually know what Abraham was thinking, and this is what Hebrews writes, Hebrews 11, 17 through 19. By faith, when God tested him, Abraham offered Isaac as a sacrifice. He, Abraham, who had embraced the promises, was about to sacrifice his one and only son. Funny line in there, because you're like, wait, there's another son. What's, <laughs> what about that? What about him? Verse 18, even though God had said to him, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. Verse 19, Abraham reasoned that God could even raise the dead. And in the manner of speaking, he did receive Isaac back from death. Abraham went into this scenario as hard as it is for us to wrap our minds around. I so firmly believe in God. If this is what he's asking me to do, then God will raise Isaac from the dead. I'm reading a memoir by an author named Harrison Scott Key. Um, and he writes in there this line. Kind of, He writes a little bit about faith, but it's sort of ancillary to the story. But he writes this particular line. He writes, everything can be doubted, even your doubts. And I might say, especially your doubts. We tend to think doubt is the most honest thing because it's asking a hard question. But do you know your doubts are sometimes fooling you? Your doubts are sometimes out to get you? Your doubts are sometimes not telling you the truth? When it comes to this absolute, infinite, and ultimate God versus my ability to understand things, I mean, listen... I, in high school, my senior year of high school, I dropped Algebra 2 because I was flunking it and I didn't want it to ruin my GPA. I cannot do Algebra 2. Honestly, I can't do Algebra 1 now, too. But anyway, I, I can't do any Algebra. <laughs> I can't do Algebra 2. Do I want to think that somehow a person who can't do Algebra 2 knows better than an infinite God? I, I don't think so. We have to approach these stories with humility. <laughs> I drink milk after the expiration date. You learned that last week. <laughs> Maybe I should approach the hard scriptures with just some humility. I think Genesis is about God. And I think God has revealed himself as just and merciful. He works with people who mess things up. He pays attention to the brokenhearted. Maybe, maybe I'm the one who's missing something. I think we're invited to see ourselves in these stories, see how God reacted. And this is an important turn we have to make as we think about that. If that's who God was, maybe that's who God is. If that's who God was in these stories, maybe that's who he continues to be. Now, some of you are going to offer two objections, two objections. Number one, some of you are going to be, you skipped some hard stories, Patrick. There was one about a guy named Judah and... Tamar, a daughter-in-law, that was pretty messed up. You didn't talk about that story, Patrick. Why did you talk about that? Well, I'm trying to keep it PG-13 in here. 
Well, let's talk. Ask me questions about that. In fact, if your small group is talking through these things, ask those questions. Ask the hard questions, seriously. Ask them. We'll talk about it. Uh, but number two, some of you are thinking, well, those people, yeah, sure, God paid attention to them. God loved them. God reacted well to them. They were the chosen people. They were the ones through whom he was going to eventually bring the king of the world, that he was a, the, the lineage of Jesus. They were the chosen people. Of course, he paid attention to them. He's not paying attention to me in frigid Minnesota in a suburb of the Twin Cities. He's paying attention to the chosen ones, but not me. I'm not a chosen one. Let me wrap up. This is the last verse we're going to read. And then, in fact, I'll go ahead and invite the praise team to come up on stage. But I just want you to see how the New Testament authors thought about these stories and these, this lineage. Look at what it says in Galatians chapter 4, verse 28. He just, just this almost a throwaway line. He says, now you, brothers and sisters, writing to a Gentile, a non-Jewish audience, a non-chosen people audience. Now you, brothers and sisters, you are uh, like Isaac. You are children of promise. You. And I know in our minds, some of us are like, not me. Maybe other people. Maybe people who haven't messed up. Maybe people who are the main characters in the story. Maybe people who get it. No. You are like Isaac, children of promise. God is paying attention to you. God will give you every chance that you need if you're willing to continue to pursue him. But maybe, just maybe, when God does and behaves in ways that we don't expect, we just... We just are humble. Ask tough questions, but are humble. Let's go ahead and stand together as we sing about God in closing.